Welcome to the Florence Crossroad podcast. We're thrilled to share with you an exciting message from our weekend service. If you would like more information about who we are as a church and how to get involved, feel free to visit florencecrossroadag.org. We hope you have an amazing experience and a great week. To heaven with him. It's going to be an amazing moment. I don't know how it's going to happen altogether. I don't know what all is going to accomplish in that. I do know this. What's going to be left is a chaotic world. I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back. Amen? How many of you believe that Jesus is going to come back? He is, folks. I'm telling you what. I've been doing rapture practices and <laughs> anxious for it, anxious. You remember that, that old it was a commercial, I think it was Target, open, open, open. I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Amen. We've been waiting a long time, and I've had people, skeptics, say, well, you know, Jesus told this two millennium ago, and people have been concerned. Yes, and you know what? With every day passing, it's one day closer. Paul would, would write these words, and, and they're words that we've all read, or many of us have read before, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have died. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord Therefore, and I like these words, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's an, it's, excuse me, it's an imperative that he's giving to us. It's interesting that, that the catching away, or we will be caught up, this concept comes from uh, the, the Greek word apodzo. The Latin derivative of that is, is the word rapara. It, it means literally a snatching out, a catching up, a taking away of those that are here. It's interesting that it's not just the writing of Paul. Jesus spoke very prophetically about this as well. It, it, it's going to happen in such rapidity as Paul says that in the twinkling of an eye, in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about in the twinkling of an eye, we will be out of here. The twinkling of an eye is one fortieth of a second. You can't even think quicker than that going to be that quick. Amen? But when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, there were people in the church that were creating havoc for the church. There were people saying that Jesus Christ had already come. And that created a great deal of, of consternation and concern. It was a very frustrating moment. That rumor created so many people being upset that Paul would almost immediately, within weeks, we're told, he would, re, he would write the second letter to the Thessalonian church to help correct what had been mistaught and what had been taken out of context in his first letter. In this chapter, we're going to look at some things in 2 Thessalonians, but in the chapter, we find that God is going to give through Paul a very graphic description of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. There's three separate scenes that I see in this chapter. 
And the first one is a world in rebellion to God with the man of sin ready to lead them on. How many of you think that our world is already in rebellion? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how it works for you, but, but it, it really does seem that way. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. He's correcting this false teaching that had come to the church after his first letter. Let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come unless the falling away, the falling away, and, and there's the... the uh, the, the Greek word for falling away is apostasius, and it really is what we would consider apostasy. You, you see where you can get that word apostasy. Apostasius is the word for falling away. Comes first, and then the man of sin is revealed, and the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What he's telling us is that Jesus hasn't come yet. And before Jesus can come, there's going to be a, a worldwide apostasy that will overtake the world. The apostasy is really powerful because Paul is talk, talking about this in verse 8, he, he uses the word the lawless one. And, and it's interesting because apostasias and this word for lawlessness is anomia. It comes to the idea of one who will no longer subscribe to this word. One that no longer believes in this book. One that no longer lives according to what God has written. That is the apostasy that is coming. How many of you understand that today the Bible is considered hate speech in many sectors of this country? Are you aware that there are laws in certain states that prohibit pastors like myself from standing on the principles of this word because those words will be considered hate speech to certain segments of our community? It's apostasias. It's this concept of falling away. I was raised in a world so different than this world. Many of you were. I remember back in 1955, 56, when I started school, I would go to school, and every day we had a prayer in the name of Jesus. And on the wall of every classroom were the Ten Commandments. How many of you remember that? Things have changed substantially since that time. Jesus is no longer allowed to be mentioned in our schools. The Ten Commandments are somehow prohibited. Isn't it amazing? 17,000 laws are written to help us understand the ten that we can't seem to keep. A great falling away from truth, from the word. From the word in the body of Christ. There's apostasy 
that takes place in two separate scenes. One is in the world. As I said, this, this world was uniquely different back in the 50s and 60s. 1962 prayer was banned in public in our public schools. In 1980, this displaying of the Ten Commandments was banned in public schools. How's it worked since then? Today, we have wholesale rejection of biblical morality in our society. Today, we, have, we are living in what is many, by many theologians, describing it as a post-Christian and post-biblical society. In our armed forces, there's open attacks on displays of Christianity. February 1st, 2014, Marine, Marine Lance Corporal Monica Sterling was court-martialed for displaying a passage of Scripture on her computer that said, no weapon formed against us will prosper. She was ordered to remove it, and she said she would not, as it was her religious freedom to have it there, and she was court-martialed. The Military Religious Freedom Foundation called for the court-martial of U.S. Air Force Major General Craig Olson because he dared to acknowledge his faith in a speech at the National Day of Prayer. We live in a day where open rebellion against God, godliness, morality, and the church itself is being expressed more and more. We're considered hate mongers because we believe in the word of God. It all began many years prior than 50 years ago. But it seems to me that within the last 10 to five, five to 10 years, it's ramped up exponentially. Am I, am I wrong in my thinking on that process? Paul put it bluntly, this apostasy in our world is against Christ it's against the Bible, it's against morality, and it's against the church of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, we're not just seeing it in the world. We're seeing it in the church as well. When I use the term church, that's a broad-spectrum term. There are many people who identify with the church but do not identify with this book. It's a pretense in many ways. There is apostasy in the church. Jesus prophesied that when he returned, half of the church would not be faithful. Half of the church would not be ready for heaven. Half of the church would not be saved. That's a strong statement. Let me back it up. Jesus told them in graphic description that the world we live in and what it would be like when he came back. In chapter 24 and chapter 25 of the book of Matthew, Jesus gives a very strong uh, teaching and, and directive towards these last days. And he would give three parables related to the return of the Lord and the coming of God. And in chapter 20, uh, 25, he, he gives us this one parable. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. 
But the wives took oil in their vessels with the lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour which the Son of Man is coming. Half. That's what he's saying in that passage. Half of those virgins, supposed Christians, in name only, half would not be ready because they had not made that declaration of their life. Today, many churches and denominations are rejecting the teachings of Christ and the Word of God. You can't be pro-Bible and pro-abortion in the same breath, folks. There's a growing number of churches ordaining practicing homosexuals and pro-gay marriage. And that situation alone has split many, many churches right down the middle. Many churches do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Half of the churches do not believe in a literal hell or a literal devil. If the Bible lies about one aspect, you can't believe any of it. If there is no devil and there are no demons and there is no hell, then you can't believe what God says about heaven. Jesus preached more and taught more about hell than he did heaven. And the reason that he did so was because he knew the awfulness of that place Hell isn't just a place of burning fire and sulfur and all of that, and I have no idea, and I don't want to find out. But I can tell you what hell would be for me. It would be abject aloneness without the presence of God forever. I've had people say, well, I'm going to go to hell and join my friends. You'll never see them there because you will be in abject loneliness Void of the very presence of God. And Jesus knew that, and he taught very firmly on that principle. Many churches today believe in universalism, that there are many ways to God. I was reading an article the other day about Oprah Winfrey and how in her universality of thought, you can find God through many avenues. You can find it through New Age. You can find it through Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism or Islam or any other way. But that isn't what this book tells us. This book says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me or through the Son. 
That, that's the only way. It isn't God trying to be mean. It's simply God saying, I have given to you the antidote to the sin-filled problem of our world. And it's not through anything other than my son. It's not through your works. It's not through your goodness. It's not through your giving. It's through the sacrifice of my son. And there is no other religious system, there is no other order wherein God gave us the only begotten, his only son that would take the transgression of all man's sin upon himself. No other way than through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ alone. In a denominational meeting, and this is what stirred my whole process of thought this week, one of the leaders of this particular denomination, a very staunch old-line denomination, stood in one of their national gatherings, and he made this declaration. And this is a leader. He's not just one of the delegates. He's one of their leaders. He says, I will not define my lifestyle nor my sexuality by the four corners of this book. It is time for another testament to be written that is more up-to-date and written for the times we're living in. That is pure apostasy. This book has stood for millenniums. You must understand that eternity to God has no beginning or ending. It is continuum. It's always in the present state with God. 1876 is no more different than 2019 in his mind. When he wrote this book, he wrote it understanding every generation, every culture, and every shift in every culture that would come. He knew what it would be like. He knew where it would go. And he didn't change the word to fit the culture of the day. Much of the church is true. Many in the body of Christ have a very strong faith in Christ Jesus. Thank the Lord for that. There are multitudes, millions of men and women around the world that love Jesus Christ, that have a committed relationship with him. But many, many are raising up and rejecting Christ and the clear teachings of the Bible and the moral base by which it is given. Paul was telling them that Jesus hasn't come yet and won't until there is a great falling away, not only in the world, but in the church. Jesus said, when I come back, half of the church is going to be false and pretending that they know me. A second scene that I see is a tipping point. It's the rapture of the church. There are some people that don't want to believe in the rapture. There are some people that feel like we're really off of our rocker to believe in such a thing. But if I believe this book and I believe the teachings of Jesus and I believe the principles in which Jesus gave and God gave through all of mankind, then I have to believe that there is going to be a time when he comes and he says, enough is enough. And he takes out the remnant, his own people. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so. Notice the word only he, it's capitalized. 
That's not a human person. That's not a mortal being. This is speaking about God himself. For he, God, who now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawlessness will be revealed. Lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That great falling away is going to happen, and it's going to happen, and when it does, the end will happen. Jesus will come back, take us out of this world, but when we're out of here, the restraining force that keeps evil at bay will be gone. You see, church, you are the church. You are the church. You are the temple, the dwelling place of the living God. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit himself came and dwells within you. And it is the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, in this body and in the corporal body of Christ, that is the restraining force of evil. The reason, the only reason that Satan can't do more in our world, the only reason that there is some sense of a moral tone at all in our world is because of the restraining force of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in our world. This church is a restraining force of evil in this city. Not just this church, but any God fearing, Bible-believing, fundamental church that believes that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior alone is the restraining force of evil even in our own community. That Holy Spirit and the church is going to be taken away. And when that happens, it's going to be an evil moment. We have to, we, we cannot abdicate our role and our responsibility. How many of you know we have a role in our world? We're not just going along to get along here, folks. God has given to us responsibility as believers in our world today. And I think there are two things that we have to remember. One, we're in a spiritual warfare. How many of you already figured that out? And the Word of God says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the very pulling down of strongholds within our world. We have a spiritual authority to take authority over the principalities and powers in our world. That means in our community, in the world in which we live. But too often we fail to do that. Too often we relegate that to somebody else. Too often we're too busy to remind ourselves of that. We have a responsibility to pray against the principalities of, of, of darkness that would create corruption and distraction and hurt in, the, in our communities. I, I think it's high time that as the body of Christ, we stood to the term and believed God for spiritual warfare, not spiritual weirdness, but spiritual warfare about going after the powers of darkness. Now, that's a, I'll say amen all by myself on that one. It's an amen or an oh me kind of a message this morning. You know, you can't believe, I, 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 well, let me finish. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, of this age, of this age. How many of you think there are rules, principalities and rulers of darkness in this, in this present age? And friends, I'm going to be, can I be as blunt as the back of an axe? How can you believe that God has given to us the precarious, precious gift of life And then assume that we can destroy that life in the womb. That, to me, takes a spiritual darkness to buy into that lie. We need to be militant in prayer. But secondly, we need to be wise in action and voice as well. Elie Wiesel wrote these words, and if you have ever read, read any of his, his writings, he, he makes this statement. He was held in Auschwitz during the concentration era of the Second World War. He was able to escape that horrible night of darkness that came uh, as the Nazi boot came down on the Jewish people. And he came out of it wiser and stronger, but these are his words, and I think it's, it's a word resonant in us. He says, always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And what he's saying is that the church of Jesus Christ cannot be silent when apostasy rises its ugly head in our society, in our culture, even in our churches. We cannot be silent and say, oh, that's fine and everything is good. No, all is not fine and all is not good. Silence is complicit to the problem. How do we deal with this in our culture? How do we deal with this in in the world that we live? Paul is telling us the restrainer, the true church, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out during the rapture. The Antichrist won't be revealed until after that rapture. People have said, Pastor, do you have any idea who he is? The problem is there's so many great candidates. (laughs) No, I, I don't. I I really don't. And you know what? I don't care. You know why? I don't plan to be here. And if you're worried, if you're planning on trying to figure that out and you're going to stick around, God help you. Jesus tells us in vivid description that the days coming to the rapture, coming toward that period of time are pretty ominous. In Luke 17, these are powerful words. In Luke 17, it says, as it was in the day of Noah. He uses two illustrations. He says, as it was in the day of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark. And the flood came, destroyed them all. Second illustration, he says, likewise, as it was in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot 
went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. And then listen to these words. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. The two two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other left. It's a selective rapture. Not everybody's going to go when the trumpet of the Lord sounds. Only those that know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will escape that moment. Verse 37, and they answered and said to him, We're Lord. So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Where do eagles gather? In the air. They don't exist merely to sit on top of limbs. Where do they, where do they find their greatest moment? It's in the air. Have you, we, we, we have eagles everywhere around here. Have you seen them? I love it. I love watching these beautiful bald eagles as they soar. They, they find those thermals and they just soar. First Thessalonians gives a description of it. It says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Where the eagles gather is in the air. Where are we going to meet the Lord? In the air. Jesus is giving to us a very real description. I'm not going by, by Air Force One. I'm going by plain air. All right? I don't know how that works, but I'm out of here. It, it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a selective process. Two will be in the field. Two will be in bed. Two will be grinding. One will be taken. One will be left. It doesn't matter, friends, what your parents believed. It doesn't matter if your husband or wife knows Jesus. It doesn't matter if your grandparents were praying saints of God. It doesn't matter what somebody else that you believe or trust is saying. It only matters what you have committed your life to. Does that make sense? Do you know that God has no grandchildren? Only sons and daughters. You're not going to be in heaven vicariously because of somebody else. My grandmother had 12 children. God bless her soul. And I'll never forget her her telling me she, she was the Walter Cronkite, Cronkite in prayer. <laughs> she prayed for every single one of her children, every one of her grandchildren, every one of her great-grandchildren, and every one of her great-great-grandchildren by name every night. Twelve grandkids, 38 great, excuse me, 12 children, 38 grandchildren, 46 great great-great-grandchildren and 12 great-great-great-grandkids and there were several in escrow when she passed away. <laughs> and I had the privilege of being there with Grandma and when she'd go, we'd put her down at night and she would always say, Son, I've got to pray. And she would pray for all of her kids. 
And then she started with her grandkids. I'm number one. <laughs> Sometimes she'd go to sleep before she gets finished. But I was always number one. She told me, she said, you know, they say I can't take anything to heaven. But she says, I'm taking all of my family. And she says, here's how I'm taking them. And she would begin to pray for every one of them. Lord, let them come to a saving knowledge of you as their personal Savior. Let them bow their heart and their knee to you as Lord and Savior of their life. Let them know the power of the blood of Jesus Christ over their life. Let them know the redemptive grace of Jesus Christ. 